I would say folks that actually come into farming as a second career have a leg up. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. We could talk about what's happening in agriculture today or happening out on the farms is that in addition to growing food, we're actually growing farmers. And I've got a guest today who's really on the front line of growing farmers, even refers to what he does and what the organization does as far as growing farmers. And I want to welcome Michael Kilpatrick. Michael, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, Michael, I don't get a chance to listen to as many podcasts as I would like, uh, but I listen to yours a lot, and uh, I, and it, it's keeping me posted on that front line. And Michael, mm -hmm. when you and I have talked before, one of the reasons that I got so enthused about, I want to keep coming back to you, is that you have some optimism. You know, I think that in an environment of so many things that seem to be going wrong on the farm and how hard it is to farm and so forth, you were able to get me enthused from saying these are people that are doing things that are figuring out either how to get into farming, how they can survive at farming and more than survive, hopefully prosper at farming. And I really like to think of you, Michael, as I could go to for, you know, a good vibe. So don't let me down. Don't let me down. You got, you got some more of that good vibe to share? Yeah. I mean, my wife thinks I'm an eternal optimist and in some aspects I am and others I'm not. But um, I, I, to me, farming and especially the profitable farms are the ones that keep looking at the horizon and and basically are the ones that keep trying new things. Um, because again, I work with them all the time as the profitable success successful farms that are doing, you know, six figures and and taking a six figure salary home and um, just seeing them thrive is what keeps me going. And the folks that are on that journey as well. You know, it is exciting. And, and I'm sure you found as I have found too, that some of these people haven't been involved in agriculture before and they're, they're, they're jumping in mm -hmm. and they're actually looking over the fence and saying, you know what, I think there's a better way uh, and that what they would really like to do would be involved, you know, be able to live in the country, be able to get a farm going and get something connected with agriculture growing. And yeah. um, I'm sure some of them don't make it, but you've got to be running into people that have that curiosity and that and that and you encourage them, I think, with the stories you're sharing. Yeah, um, I would say folks that actually come into farming as a second career have a leg up. And I'll tell you why, because a lot of the times, um, if you've had, let's say, multi-generation farmer, you're pressured or you feel like you're just going to keep doing it like dad did it. And so there is that aspect of farmers don't, if it don't, don't change if it ain't broken, but it is broken, unfortunately, but they don't quite see it that way yet. Yeah. But the farmers that are coming from outside farming is they don't know what's right and they don't know that they have to do it the old broken way. They can try these new ways without, you know, reprisal from family members. And typically they have another 
A, they have some income to help them get started to try these things. And B, they also have outside skills. So let's say they maybe have some marketing skills or some business skills or building infrastructure skills, which allow them to transition to running a business because farming is running a business. You're just growing crops in that business or livestock or whatever other farming endeavor that you dive into. You know, that's that's such a hopeful attitude. One thing I think about when you say that, Michael, is that they have to convince other people to go along with it. I mean, at some level, they're talking to their own family and saying, Jim, I'm going to make the plunge. I'm going to quit the job. We're going to move to this mm-hmm. area. We're going to get this stuff started. And sometimes they need to go see a banker because they need a little bit more than what they can carry on their personal credit card to be able to get a venture going. Um, are you able to give anybody any help or suggestions on in that regard? That uh, Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we do, we have a a course called the Start Your Farm Intensive. So we take people through idea to figuring out how to write a simple business plan to then going out and testing that in the marketplace and then actually going and looking for funding if they want to. And there's all sorts of different types of funding. I mean, you got everything from, um, you know, yourselves, your friends and neighbors to going and partnering with uh, folks like Steward, who are actually a um, farm specific lender and they work with mainly regenerative farms. And then you should have him on, um, the guy's name is Dan Miller. You should have him on the podcast if you haven't already. And then even USDA, USDA is a great resource. It's cheap money. It just takes a tremendous amount of time and it's a lot of work. But again, if you have the, the systems and processes and the financials in place, it can be pretty easy to work through. Boy, when you mentioned the USDA, I'm wondering whether you started to teach them how to apply for grants because there's been so much. There's <laughs> yes. so much. There's a lot of money out there. I'm still impressed. Mm-hmm. It used to be when I hear people talk about millions, I was impressed. But now it usually starts with a B instead of an yeah. M. That is the amount of dollars that are available from different sources, state level and and federal as well. Absolutely. And, you know, again, the USDA and government generals, I love hate relationship because they, on some aspect, don't quite get it. And there's, it takes a long time for things in government that wheels a turn. So typically they're like 10 years out of date, but we'll take what we can get. Um, but to the money side, there are, there are significant things, especially with the value added producer grants, which I think are a fabulous idea and have helped so many farmers who do have an idea of taking something from a raw product and actually turning it into a much more, um, let's say turning uh, cabbage into sauerkraut. Uh, we do uh, cucumbers in the pickles um, or, you know, all sorts of ideas of, you know, if you have a line of hot sauces or something, they can really help with a lot of that. So there is a fair amount of money out there. Um the biggest concern is to make sure you don't get locked into anything that you then have a hard time extracting yourself from. You know, when you mentioned that there's a love-hate relationship with the with the government, there sure is, because I, what I hear a lot of people saying that the regulations are just too tough. There's no way that they can quite figure it out. Of all the different things they can figure out, Michael, they might figure out how to come up with a business plan and, and so forth. But then there are regulations that they have to cope with that... They say, gee, it's it's easier if I were Tyson and I could dedicate a whole department to, mm-hmm. you know, filling all those regulations than it is with my small farming operation or whatever the processing operation is, or even extending into a commercial kitchen or something. It's just like it to them seems unfair. So again, I that love hate relationship you mentioned really brought that to mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the aspect of regulation is huge. And I'm I'm a very libertarian at heart. So again, I 
just hate government regulation, period. But there are some regulations which are good. I mean, I will, I, we have to say that. I mean, there's a reason why our skies are cleaner today than they were 30, 40 years ago, because we had to, they decided that certain power plants needed to fix their smog. And we lost our um, acid rain, which actually had a lot of sulfur in it. So now farms have to apply sulfur every year. But it's just a quick, inkling and snapshot of just how much was raining out of the sky. And I'm sure a lot of things there that weren't good. So again, before I start getting on top of regulation, I have to say there is a place and a purpose. Now, does the government go way too far? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so your point of someone who may be trying to do value adding with a kitchen or you know all these different regulations, first there's federal, there's 30,000 pages on just the ingredients that you can put in pizza in the federal register. Um, then your state, typically the state regulation is backing up the federal and like kitchens and stuff. If you're in a certified kitchen, that typically is state level. You got county, county health, there might be some stuff there. Um, you got your town and or township or like county. Um, I had a, a farmer that reached out to me out in the Midwest and they're in Nebraska, I think. So cattle country, farm country. And the county said, yeah, we don't think you should have an on-farm store. We think people should go to the grocery store and buy their meat that we you don't think we don't think you should sell meat to people we think you should sell it to the co-packer the co-packer sell it to the distributor the distributor sell it to the grocery store and people go buy it there when it's being produced next door um and you know the problem with some local governments is they just don't understand and i'm unfortunately now uh counsel in our local government so i have to see that on a daily basis of just how incompetent that again and again a lot of these folks are well-meaning but they put their spin on what they believe. So a quick recent thing is um, in our little town, uh, someone called into the city and said, hey, I want to get bees. Oh, you're not allowed to have bees. So they reach out to me. Like we ended up talking about something like, oh, I can't have bees. And I was like, wait a minute, we're allowed to have bees. So I call into the city hall or I email. And I says, well, what's up with this? And they're like, well, no, you're allowed to have bees. I don't know who would have told them that. Find out. They do know it was a rogue employee who just was putting their perspective that they didn't think that this person should have bees, but it was completely illegal. And again, the problem with government is government is, has, um, uh, you can't sue them. They have, you know, yeah, they have, a, you know, it's one of those things that government entity can't be sued, which means the people in there can't be sued, except for like very grievous things. So there's always that escape for them. So they can say whoever the heck they want. And the only thing they're going to get is a little egg on their face. It's not like nothing will ever change. Um, so that's the problem. I mean, these small farms that just want to heal their communities, you know, we have, we see so much sickness and, 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 and obesity right now. And giving people fresh food would be just great for that. But farmers are not even allowed to cut up squash or even quarter a watermelon because someone might not need a 30 pound watermelon. It's illegal unless they have a specific licensed kitchen. Um, now, granted, some of those things um, some of these places I've seen process stuff, they should have a kitchen because it's crazy and it's 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 really um, unsafe. But I would say that I have worked in multiple certified kitchens that were way dirtier than my own kitchen. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. back when we were in New York, I may have mentioned this the last time I was on, but we rented a certified kitchen and it was so dirty that my my uh, employee basically at that point said, Michael, I don't feel comfortable processing down there. She said, can I do it in my own kitchen? And I was like, mm, let's take a look. Let's talk about this. And again, statute of limitations has passed, so I can freely share this, but we ended up processing in her kitchen because it was way cleaner and there wasn't rats. Wow. I tell you, you know that you mentioned oh, the word rogue. 
uh, back a couple minutes ago. And, yeah. and that's on my mind because I've talked to Joel Salatin and he's involved with a, a conference. You're involved with conferences mm-hmm. too that are that are using the word rogue, which I interpret when I hear that. It's kind of get your attention, but it's it's sort of like, wait a minute, you got to figure a different way to skin a cat uh, yeah. in, in these things because if you look at it just a straight on, some of these things are almost seem impossible. You just can't do it. You know, well, mm-hmm. and and there's so many dead ends that uh, a farming or food or a processing operation runs into. And and they're kind of coming up with creative ways that are have been the rules. I'm staggering around here because I've, even using the word yeah. rogue seems like it could make people nervous. But yeah. what, do you, what do you think of that? And, and you know, you've got a different perspective because you see these taking place and you've been involved in organizing sessions and that, yeah. that are pointing out these other ways to get your products to market and deal with these these issues. Yeah. And again, I, I like to say, again, there's some very well-meaning um Government agents out there. I'm not gonna, not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna use a broad brush here because I have met them. There's some fine people. I've I've worked with some of them, um, but you know, just the the kitchen regulations for like a good agricultural practice kitchen regulations. I've got them right here uh, because actually we're in the process of trying to put together a kitchen um, for our processing stuff. And the thing that you keep seeing again and again is, let's see here. Yes. Thing you keep seeing again is in a condition. They use the word adequately cleaned. They use the word adequate ventilation. They use adequate repair. Identified, held, and stored in a manner that protects against contamination. Um, adequate source of water. Not one time do they say, "Well, adequate water is these parts per million," or "adequate cleaner is bleach." Sanitate, this sort of thing. So, and I talked to the head regulation. I've got her on 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 basically a recording saying, well, there is no standard. It's whatever we as inspectors feel is the right standard. And I said, well, that's wrong. I said, how is anyone supposed to ever prepare for an inspection slash when a new inspector comes along, they have a different idea. And, you know, we have, we have a, a, um, a, a annual summit we do. And if you go to farmsummits.com, you can get all the information for there. We have a, re, a one coming up this year, later this year, um, that we have a herbalist that basically has had a certified kitchen. Again, from the start, she wanted to work with them. So she was basically doing this before they had a regulation, but she'd been going along great for years. Then all of a sudden, a brand new inspector, fresh out of school, walks in and says, hey, you need to use bleach. And you need to bleach your herbs before you process them. And she said, not in my life am I going to pour that caustic bleach on these very fragile herbs, which are then just, yeah, that's not going to happen. So anyway, she tells the whole story and and that, and, and, and it's something that it will raise people's hackles because I know there's a lot of people that believe that, you know, the government's word is, is the, uh, is the golden standard, but I have to say, I hate to agree with you, disagree with you a little bit on that. I think there needs to be a little bit more give and take. Um, and that's why Joel has the rogue food conference and, uh, I'm always excited to be a part of it. Um, because, and the thing with that is it's not about here's ways we're going to sneak around the government. Joel does a great job. And, and John Moody, who's his partner in that, do a great job of sharing. These are people that are complying and here's how they're doing that. These are all the steps they're taking. This is why they're doing it that way. Um, this are the things you want to talk to inspectors about. And then he also has people like me who are a little on the other side, which like, hey, if you want to 
circumvent or figure out creative ways to comply, here's some other ways you can do it. One of the things we have is a private membership association. So our members of our farm join a private club and can shop our products without the government involved. Um, so basically, we've set ourselves up as a nonprofit food church. Um, mm-hmm. And again, once you start down that road, it gets all sorts of aspects into the Constitution and um, you know freedom of religion and freedom of expression. And so you get multiple layers of protection. So that's something that we've done. That's why Joel tends to bring me in for these things, because it's always fun to, again, I love these other farmers that they're doing what they're doing. That's for them. What we're doing is for us. And again, we are in the process of putting some of these certified processes and kitchens in place because we want to be doing additional things with our product. Um, So again, different strokes for different folks. Um, Our big thing is for the small producer, there needs to be a lot more freedom than for the Cargills and for the JBSs. I mean, JBS were just caught using 12 and 13 year old kids for the the grave grave, uh, shift to clean their plants. I mean, how messed up is that? You've got literally you know, people that are barely teenagers, you know, getting caustic soda burns because they're using these nasty cleaners working all night in these massive cleaning plants because they're just trying to save a few bucks. Oh, I, I tell you, get me started on these things because I've seen the same things. And it's what's encouraging, I think, is that you and Joel and, and some others are are trying to help people through this. I mean, it all needs to be improved. I've got other thoughts, too, on some of these improvements hmm. that need to, need to take place. But I think we should pause for a second, even though by the time some people will be listening to this particular podcast, some of your near-term events will have been over. You continue to have events like this, but could you give an an idea of the kind of topics that will be covered and will be covered probably in the future and other events such as that for the the Rogue and and related conferences? And then we'll tell people how they can go online and see what you have scheduled that you're involved with. Yeah, so I think the the rogue, I think it's roguefoodconference.com. I think so too. Um, I'm just pulling it up here real quick because I want to, yeah, it's roguefoodconference.com. He has a couple every year. So again, if you miss out and you can always get the recordings. Mm-hmm. So you can always get the recordings if you can't make the live event. The live event is so much better though, because a lot of what we miss as small farmers is we're rural, we're actually pretty urban, but most are rural and the community of other farmers. And the community at these rogue food events, you may think it, you know, people may think, oh, it's a bunch of weirdos that are, you know, their guns and their religion. Yeah, we love our guns and religion, but we are typically the nicest people you ever meet. And we just want to feed people. We want to heal our communities. We see how sick they are from the global pharma system, um, which is destroying lives on so many different levels. And we just want to get them good food. And so we don't want the government to give us tens of thousands of dollars of regulations so I can sell you one steak. Um, and so that's why we do what we do. Um, so yeah, it's you get with this these conferences of the rogue. You have Joel speak. You'll have and he'll talk about like the kind of the new things he's seen happen. Um, I think we got Thomas Massey, who's actually a, a congressman, um, and Thomas is one of the only Senate uh, congressmen to have an off grid um, house. Um, that's the solar. I mean, again, people 
talk about Republicans as like anti a lot of like, you know, uh, holistic and environmental. But Thomas is one of those that hasn't spent a dime on electricity in years. Um, and he's, you know, that's he's really excited about that. He's a pasture farmer. He raises his own meat. He raises his own peaches. Um, so he's going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that he's doing and some of the things, stuff on the federal level he's working on. Um, and then you have other farmers, um, like a cheese farmer, I think a, a, a raw herd dairy. Um, so again, how people are setting up herd shares and that sort of thing. And then food blind clubs. That's the kind of things you're going to hear from that. And that's roguefoodconference.com. Um, the other thing that we do is called it's farmsummits.com. And we pretty much do an annual summit at this point. Um, our, this one that's coming up here shortly is called the uh, Thriving Farmer Summit Value Added. Um, and the value add is a little tricky word for some folks to think about. So we like to say income adding um, because typically when you take, again, a potato and turn it into French fries, or you take cabbage and turn it into a sauerkraut, or you take a small piece of the corner of your farm, throw a load of gravel down and start inviting um, RVers to camp there, you're making way more money off that product. And you're controlling further down the, the process line. So far too long, farmers have been only earning about 16 cents of every dollar for food. But when you go to retail, you're selling out retail. So now you're making maybe $3 for the head of cabbage instead of, you know, 21 cents a pound, but then you, let's say, process that into sauerkraut, you're now making $15 from that head of cabbage compared to three. So you're making hundreds of percent more. And so what this upcoming summit's all about is I think about 30 plus, maybe 35 different speakers that are sharing all sorts of ways that they are thriving with value-added production. And we've got everyone from flower farmers to meat farmers to um, mushrooms to um, vegetables, ferments, uh, on-farm events. We got on farm pizza night. We got chefs that started a farm and now selling like uh, freezer meals out of their off their farm. So it's so fascinating. The other big aspect is obviously we can talk about all these ideas, but now the question is how do I do it? How do I market this? How do I set up the business? How do I comply with the government regulations? So we got all experts in that as well. We got people that are going to show you how to take great pictures of a value added product to the four different types of commercial kitchens. You know that's the other side of this whole summit is yes, we're going to give you great ideas. And then we're going to teach you on how to implement those as well. Wow. There's so many things that are, that are exciting that's uh, that's coming down the pike. You know, one of the things that's that's happened lately is that getting some more help to get local meat processing, processing plants open. And while that's yes. coming and while they're getting on board and that's available to, to more people and Many of them are just getting built right now across the, across the country. At the same time, the other thing is that people taking title to the livestock that are being slaughtered. So you can actually mm-hmm. purchase a steer or purchase a lamb or purchase a pig and then even participate in the processing itself. But you own it. And that gets around some of the some of the issues then until people are able to get to the point that they got an approved processing plant going. You see yeah. those? We are seeing incredible success. And actually, I'm glad you brought the meatpacking aspect up because we feature in the summit a farmer who basically got tired of traveling hours to get his meat processed and waiting two years. Like he had the book basically 24 months in advance. And one opened up close by to him, but they were they had 4X the prices that he was normally paying. So he said, I can't afford this anymore. So he figured out how to start basically his own slaughter plant. And uh, right now he's just processing. So he has to have them killed someplace else, but the, pro- the carcasses back. And what he's done, and this is, again, goes back to the government incompetence, is the 
head inspector said, this is how you can do this. You can stack 20 different licenses on one kitchen. So that means he has to have 20 different inspections. They get really good at it. And so they can knock it out. But his local inspector said, oh, you can't do that. There's no way. And so the guy basically said, well, your, your, your boss did a webinar on it. You want me to give him a call? So it's these are the kinds of things where, um, again, he's figuring out a creative way, working with them. Again, he's very inspected, uh, but he built his own and now he is profiting. I mean, it kind of, he didn't want to share the numbers on the call just because of, you know, sensitivity about that kind of stuff. But he did share afterwards kind of what his numbers look like and he, why he thinks farmers all across the U.S. should be doing this themselves. And um, again, he, he can walk you through like the different things you need to think about as you go through that. But it's a huge need. Um, right now, again, I mentioned Stuart earlier. So they're typically a, a pretty big sponsor of our, our summit. Um, but they were telling me about a $10 million project that they're working with. I think it's in the West someplace. They are funding an entire slaughter plant and processing plant. Uh, I think a coal pack facility and then also a restaurant and then also some like infrastructure around that. So literally they are revitalizing entire regions to be able to have their own processing facility again, and they can do custom and they can do USDA. And then if the person can't, you know, have a, doesn't have a place to sell it, they can buy that and sell it in their, through their restaurant. So these are the kinds of things which gets me so fired up because I know that we are changing local food systems feeding our families better food, giving farmers an honest buck for what the work they're doing. And again, um, just creating less um, less waste. Wow. I, uh, what an exciting vision. And, you know, one thing I wanted to get back to, though, is you were saying that oftentimes there's problems with the bureaucracy. And, and, and I think you've said several times that there are people that have good intentions. But I look at it, uh, if you look at, the, at a, any big company, and you could say, okay, well, the people on the, the the money side, they've got a strict way of looking at everything. And then the people on the marketing side, and there are silos, if you will. And I think the same kind of management challenge exists in government at the local, state, national level. Because, again, if you get in a company, you want to have those people that are really trying to keep an eye on the bottom line. But you hear what the marketers say about them? They call them bean counters. And they mm -hmm. say, you know, they're impractical. And you know what the bean counters say about the marketers? They say they're they're liars. They'll just say anything to be able to sell a product that they overly promote and so forth. But that's just the natural tension of, I think, inclinations. Uh, but what it takes to try to balance it, really, is stronger management i mean in in some cases you could use more government or different government than having people in key positions that say oh look you got to be a little bit more relaxed a little more specific in this way you know work with these people this way and in the past i've seen some of those people do that uh, i knew a guy at the usda who was just great at that in the ag marketing service mm -hmm. and then he retired went back to his farm in alabama Mm -hmm. But while he was there, he was able to tap the brakes and saying, you're getting too extreme here, lighten it up here. And and I, I feel like it's an area that, yeah. anyway, I, I see it. I just yeah. wish there was I, more attention to that sort of thing because I think it can be improved. Oh, I hear where you're coming from. Um, 
I would say, you know, a great example of just that would be um, Ray Archuleta, who is like the soil soil guy. Absolutely. I mean, for years, he was doing these webinars and these trainings. And I remember the first time I met him, I was just blown away at just, he again, he had his talk. He went around every single weekend. He was someplace different in the US. But what he said to me one time, he's like, I had to quit so I could share the message that needed to get out. Yeah. Because he said I was being limited. Um, and again, I would say... Pardon this expression, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, and that, unfortunately, I feel like the system is broken. And the aspect is that the government, and this really comes down to, it's, it's really interesting because now that I'm actually getting more and more involved in local government and just trying to understand from the inside. Again, there's, I mean, because we're, again, last night I was at one of our council meetings and we were trying to figure out a way to fund our police. police. Um, we are like a half million dollars a year short in our funding. And so we're just, you know, we're arguing up there. Again, it's good, honest conversation and we're passionate about how we're trying to help them. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, you look at, look at the differences between, um, uh, SpaceX and NASA. Yeah. How many years did it take NASA to get off the ground compared to SpaceX? Everyone says, well, NASA's invented it. Okay. But then how many years, did it, how long did it take NASA to put that rocket they just launched yesterday into orbit and compared to how many times has Elon launched his rockets? Sure, he failed, but they just, their cycle of, of, of aspects was just so much faster. The innovation in private industry, I feel, is, is, way, is way different. And part of it is going to come back to, um, in private, there's always the aspect of pushing the boundaries of trying to understand you have to beat the competition. So you're always going to be pushing a little bit harder. Um, if you read the book, the infinite, the, I think it's the infinite game by Simon Sinek, um, definitely something that the read, um, but he talked about, let's say the Wrights brothers versus, um, the guy that was working on flight for the government. I forget his name, but it's a fascinating story of basically at the same time they were both working on it. The guy day, the Wright brothers took off in flight. The government guy quit because he's like, oh, I just all I wanted to do was invent it first. He didn't care. Um, so the thing about farmers and, and, and being private industry is so many more times we're way more passionate about it. And the other yeah. problem with government is government is always trying to stay safe. They always have to make sure everyone is is covered. And so there's that as constantly aspect of caution. And sometimes you just need to throw a little caution to the wind and figure out how to make it work. Um, you know, that's why if you look at some of these, um, you know, government programs compared to just how more efficient the private industry can be. So I get where you're saying coming from. And I don't know if maybe the, one of the solutions would be a private watchdog, which can go in there and have some, um, you know, some, some bargaining power with the government. I'd love to see that. I'd love to think that could work. Um, but, you know, I just see way too many examples of a power hungry um, government agent just decide to squash a little farmer under the thumb because they literally had a bad day. Um, well, and when I used to go back to Washington quite a bit, and I was amazed how many people I could run into in, in Washington. It used to be at the Department of Agriculture. Everybody came from a farm. Uh, absolutely. But uh -huh. oftentimes now you run into regulators and they are like third generation bureaucrats. And they're yeah. good people, but absolutely. their mom and dad worked in the agency. Their grandparents worked in the agency. They They don't have that over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house to be able to see mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the family farm. Um, and it's, it's a huge job. And I think it, it won't solve the problem to just deal with education and intention, but it is part of it. I mean, it takes Absolutely. a lot of, it takes yeah. a lot of communications uh, to be able to bridge those gaps.
Well, and I, you know, again, it's, 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 there's a huge, it's a big problem. And, you know, if we want to start stacking layers here, I mean, we can talk about the layer of these farmers can't make enough in their farm because they can't sell direct to consumer because they can't get a processing spaces. So that means they can't go to Washington, don't have the time to go lobby the people to get better, um, you know, what they need. So it's yep. kind of like this broke this cycle. I mean, and, and the thing is, the worse it gets, the worse the farmers don't. It's not like you know, the worse it gets, the, the more people pay attention to it. The worse it gets, the worse it gets. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's definitely fly-ins and there's all of this. But I think we also have to look at it. When you look at Driscoll, it doesn't grow any strawberries anymore. No. Driscoll is a marketing agency which sells fruit. Actually, mm-hmm. it really sells happiness to people to make them think they're eating something good so they can go eat their, their Mickey D's or something like that and feel good about that. Um, but it's all the risk is on the farmers. I recently just had a woman on the podcast that released last week who basically spent and wrote a book about the California strawberry industry and methyl bromide and just how bad it is for people, how it's basically killing people. Uh, you know, um, she, she was on my podcast a, a while back, but I'm going okay, to have, uh-huh. I have her coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. Awesome. Yeah. So you're going to hear that. It's fascinating conversation, uh, but it just shows how fragile the food system is, how tight the margins are, but it always comes back. Who's making the money is the marketing companies. And that's why I'm so passionate about farmers value adding, farmers selling direct to consumer, farmers learning how to reach their community. Because you know what? If we had farmers feeding all their communities, we wouldn't have a lot of the challenges we have. We wouldn't have the global um, E. coli outbreaks. We wouldn't have um, California running out of water. We wouldn't have, um, you know, the unemployment. Now, right now, we don't have very, we have a very low unemployment, but there has been times where we have super high unemployment. Right. We wouldn't have the aspect of our kids are being more obese by the day because they would have to do some work on the farm, the local farm. Um, recently, we had some kids out to do a volunteer day and they enjoyed it. We loved having them. They Thankfully, it was a beautiful day and they, they got over a ton of carrots out of the ground for us. And it was fabulous. Um, but unfortunately, there's far too little of that happening across the nation. You know, and I want to get off on one other thing before we start heading towards a wrap up here. And then, then you were talking about companies and private industry and talking about mm-hmm. the government. But in some cases, you look at the hog industry, for example, and how many of the hogs are actually owned by farmers anymore? I mean, they're mostly these integrators. And in, and one that's particularly troublesome is to me, some of these integrators are in other countries, which is not necessarily bad, but I'm a little suspicious when when they're connected. Say it looks like a Chinese government connection on some of these products and so forth. And they and you look at the, the number of hogs across the United States that aren't really even owned by the farmers anymore. That's that's another problem, Michael, but I don't yeah. think we're going to be able to solve it in this podcast. No, I would just say that Smithfield controls 26% of the U.S. pork market, and they're a Chinese-owned company. Um, And in China, they're now doing vertical hog factories, which are like 12 to 20 um, stories high. It's basically like a massive hog hotel. Unfortunately, it's it's, it's kind of maybe more like a hovel would be more the appropriate term for it just because of um, the, the life. I mean, hogs were made to roll in the woods and the mud and root. And I've, you know, my friend, uh, Jordan green, um, great farmer on the East coast there. I mean, Joel obviously has his pasture pork too. And you just go out there and see how happy those pigs are. I know that they're the life that they are leading. Um, and then you look at these industrial systems and you're right. It's not private. It's not farmers anymore. It's literally things. But here's the thing. I think the connection I want to make there, because yeah, we're not going to solve it today, but it's the 
it's the lobbying by these massive companies, which allows them to get away with what they do. I mean, again, it's the government that allowed Smithfield to be bought by a, a Chinese entity. And I don't agree with that. Right. Um, I think that's something that's food security to me. I mean, at 26%, we lost that overnight. That would put a massive strain on the market. We saw what happened during the COVID pandemic with the, you know, the shutdowns and the massive gassings and stuff they did, which is just terrible to think about. I mean, obviously there needs to be some sort of way to correct overages and such, but um, I don't have all the answers. What I can tell you is that, you know, the, where we're focused is the work with our farmers to help them make more income and well, to help and those- them enjoy their families. And those independent smaller farmers too, they're going to be more responsible of what they're doing, even if they have a confinement operation, uh, as far as affecting their neighbors. Uh, yes. And there was a book written called Wasteland that I read that was really interesting mm-hmm. of the challenges faced with, with you know, Smithfield. And uh, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't want to be next door to some enterprise that's owned by somebody on the other side of the world that's not going to be as careful about the odors and about the pollution and, you know, other factors. Uh, but so I think with that in mind, we're going to try to leapfrog here, uh, Michael. Mm-hmm. Can we look? I mean, how can we, how do we want to see it different? You know, say 10, 20 years from now. So if we're successful with the kind of thing that you're doing, that Joel's doing, with the changes, with the new people coming in, are we going to be able to set up metrics and say that the age of the farmers are younger, or that there are uh, smaller farms that are making it, that there's a certain goal that has been achieved, a key result that's been achieved on on the amount of product that is sold within local areas, locally produced and locally sold. Whose job is it to come up with these metrics so that we can see we're, we're progressing? And again, 10, 20 years from now, you can look at it and say, it's a lot better than it was back in the, you know, 2020s. Yeah. I mean, that's something we think about. I mean, our team talks about that in different meetings and stuff is like, okay, so what is the metric that we're tracking? What are we focused on? Where does this, where does this industry need to go? Um, And again, I don't have all the answers. What I would say is the metric that we are tracking is um, to see more farmers staying in farming longer. Because if you see the amount of turnover that we see, that to me is obviously the, the the worst metric. If you see a farmer farm for three, four years, then get out. But if they stay for a decade, or as you know, my my friends Paul and Sandy, they're 30 years and retiring on their farm and they are trying to find the right person to pass it to. But they are looking. They can't find, you know, a, a good a good the what they're looking for for their succession is just not they haven't found the right fit yet, is what there's what where they are right now. Um and so I guess what I would say to that is there just is so much work to do. And, you know, again, it comes back to kind of a combination of things. It comes back to a combination of um, the lobbying having to be, and I don't know how how to solve this one, but the aspect of lobbying forming policy has to change. So I don't know how that changes, but it's got to change because what happens is you are putting the rules for big ag and we're on an uneven playing field. So you have to level the playing field. If you could level the playing field, I mean, people would be much more happy to buy a, a, a pot pie from their neighbor than they would Walmart because people do value that. People care about that. But how many hoops does someone have to jump through to be able to do that? Um 
So, you know, I think one of the big things is size is I, I don't know what the right answer on this is. This is something we've talked about too, is what's the right size farm? I mean, you have some, you know, wonderful folks like the folks over at Fairlife Milk. They're over in Indiana, not too far from me. Um, they had that animal cruelty, you know, a couple of years ago that was way over, way over, you know, um, should not have happened. Um, they, I felt handled it well. Do I agree with their entire business model and, you know, their, how they're making milk? Not necessarily, but I, you know, they're, they're good people. They're not out there to, you know, they're not, their end goal isn't to just, you know, destroy the environment. Um, you know, so uh, to me, that's too big. But, you know, to them, they're not big enough because to them, they feel like what they're doing is the right thing to do. Um, so I think size is definitely something we want to consider. The other thing I always look at is um, stress levels. Um, yeah. Is that, you know, for way too, our farmers are way too stressed. And our farmers typically spend way too little time with their kids and they're because they're out there farming. And unfortunately, some of the work that we have done to laud the farmer has also kind of given them a sort of responsibility, that their responsibility is to feed the world. So in one aspect, they are out there, well, I'm feeding the world, so that's what I'm doing, and not thinking about their quality of life, their mental health, their their kids, and all of that. So, you know, we all love to say, oh, thank a farmer day, and, you know, I'm going to go do my once annual call, you know, stop at a local farm market. But what I would just say, you know, again, I'm sure most of these are farmers listening today, but if you're not a farmer and you're not shopping local, why? Because the most important thing you can do is vote with your dollar. And I know it sounds cliche, but, you know, as a small farm here, if we literally had one-tenth of the people in our community buying from us every single week, we would not have half the struggles we do. Um, but it's when we look at the numbers, it's literally about three to five percent that are consistently shopping with us. And that's that's just that's that's a troubling statistic. I have a lot of listeners that aren't just farmers. I've got some farmers, but I've also got people just surprise me that that, that mm -hmm. are concerned and are rooting for these changes to absolutely to improve. Yeah. And and I think that that brings back to another point too. Uh, when you start talking about the health of a family, of an individual, and so forth, uh, optimism is important. And I think that that's one of the things that even now they're, they're saying more and more, the ex expectations of your own lifespan or health span is yeah. tied to have generally an optimistic attitude. So I feel like part of the challenge that we've got too, Michael, is to talk about these issues. But fortunately, with some of the things that you're doing, not lose sight of the fact of showing progress, of showing things that people could hope for and how it might get better and how it is in fact starting to get better. Mm -hmm. So we got to balance that. So it's not like people watching the cable news channels and picking what extreme you want to get fired up about, you know, yeah. in agriculture. It's making sure that we have a mix of saying, here's how it's going and here's some good stories for us to share. Yeah. And you do a good job of that with your programs. Well, you know, <sighs> When we started farming back in New York, we were very young, and I think we got away with a lot in our community because of that. And we weren't, but we also did have that aspect. Oh, you're the organic ones, um, because it was again small town, very conservative. Um, the organic ones, we were probably viewed as hippies and probably Democrats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, so again, I just find that humorous. Um, but um, 
You know, it's interesting because, you know, now I feel like the industry's grown a little bit. I think some of these conventional farmers understand a little bit more about the organic movement and, and why we feel that we do. I think they still don't agree with everything. I mean, I feel like we need all farmers to feed the nation. And again, I, I wish a lot of these farmers would change a lot of the practices they're using. And I disagree with the using of ethanol because it's a net energy uh, loss instead of actually energy plus when you factor in all the different factors of that. Um, but I think that's obviously not going to go away because of lobbying and certain senators in very red states in um you know, in the Midwest, again, it's there, that's locked and loaded. That ain't, ain't changing. Um, but again, we try to support, you know, again, and like when I'm buying locally, we go to our local farmers, even if I don't agree with everything they're doing. I mean, we have a great relationship with the largest grain farmer in our area. Uh, we buy our cover crop seed from him. And, you know, he lets the kids ride in the combine every year and we go and harvest corn with them and, and they get a big blast out of that. And they love that. And again, I value those guys and I really appreciate what they're doing. So I, my my goal isn't here to try to put a divide up. My goal here is to say, what can we agree on? What can we find connection about? Um, and, you know, can I share some strawberries with those guys? And, you know, they're, they're, they're letting me buy the grain from them for super cheap and I'm giving them some strawberries in return and they enjoy that. And I'm happy that I'm getting the, the rye at a super cheap price. Um, so that's kind of where I, you know, I like to leave things is like, we're building a community. We are, you know, focused on the best available for the farmer and we have some common enemies which we're all struggling with. We're not going to see everything eye to eye, but we're going to focus on what we can and focus on helping those in our community. Well, and I think maybe as we wrap up, but one thing I want to point to is that we do have a farm bill coming in front of us and there's going to be mm. hearings coming up on the farm bill and there'll be people and congressmen that will have a chance to wade in there. And as it's often pointed out, 75% almost of the farm bill is not really going to farmers per se. It's yeah. it's programs like SNAP and others that are in the program, but it's still a big number. And there are pro programs in there that can be pushed along, helped along uh, that will be discussed. So that's another spot for people to pay attention to the discussion and let, let their congressman know how they feel about some of these things coming forward. Yeah, um, and Roger, yeah. I'd love to come back on and talk farm bill at some point. Again, when it gets closer, if you want to do that conversation, we should talk about that because I would love to get to Washington and give them a, a couple of things to think about. I got ideas on all aspects of it. I know there's some things that are working and let's keep focusing on that. And there's some things that aren't and we should probably do a little bit less of that. I'm all for it. We'll do it. We'll get a little bit closer to the, to that time yeah. and figure out how we can rein in. They're they're still doing a lot of sorting out today as we speak in Washington, but there'll come a time that uh, that we can get in and express mm -hmm. those. And I think that there may be more opportunities available than than what we expect. So I, yeah. I think it's it's very promising. Well, Michael, I I, I love what you're doing and uh, really enjoy talking to you. And I think as we wrap up i want to give you another shot at sending people to find you find your excellent podcast but also um just in, other information of what you have going on where do you send them yeah so growingfarmers.com is our main website and that's more focused on our perennial education if you go there you can go to our thriving farmer podcast you can find um, farmsummits.com is where we do our free yearly summits and again those are 20 to 
35 different speakers and on all sorts of topics. Um, if you want to follow our personal farm, it's Farm on Central. Um, that's where I'm the farmer. And um, it's our, our eight acre urban farm here in Southwest Ohio. And our newest endeavor is farmsteadwellness.com. And that's our new health and wellness line, which is again, farm to bottle. Uh, we're doing a couple different things there. Super excited about that um, because we're helping change people's actual, you know, health challenges and stuff like that. So that's our latest project. And we're super excited about the, the direction that's going. Boy, I tell you, it's great. Hey, thanks so much. I've enjoyed the conversation. We definitely are going to do it again. So thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk, Michael. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 